0: It's so good to have you here. And man, this is the first time that I officially get, get to give a shout out to our Grace Online campus. Can we hear for our Grace Online campus? Guys, it's great to have you tune in. I was recently back in Kansas. I, I had people come to me, I've never met them before, and they're like, we watch your services every single week. Just ran into somebody from Missouri this this week, said the same thing. We had somebody tune in from Israel, not to, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Man, from all over the world, people are joining us. So it's so good to have you with us. Now, this is, like if you are new, you don't know that uh, that I just got back from vacation, but I've been gone for the last couple of Sundays, and, uh, and I came home, <laughs> needed a vacation from vacation. And uh, it is so nice to just sleep in your own bed, right? I mean, come on. Listen, it's great going on vacation and getting away. But like when it's like 24 hours before you fly home, you're like, I cannot get home quickly enough. Let's go. And so it's good to be back. But I just want to give a public shout out to... um, to Pastor Matt, to Pastor Vaughn, who just did an incredible job uh, preaching. And so may, maybe this is like your third week, and you're like, who really is the pastor around here? We all, I mean, we're all in this together, so. But, but we're in this series in Romans. I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter seven. And we're gonna jump into this because, um, well, actually, let, let me just ask you guys a question. Have you ever gone into something with expectations that weren't realistic? Okay. Okay. Like, let me just give you an example. Like, like, marriage. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like you're sure it's gonna be like the Disney version of whatever. I, I just officiated uh, a, a a wedding just just a couple days ago. And a great couple, of them, they're standing there. And in there I, was, I had this little pastoral challenge, and I'm challenging them, you know, that, hey, listen, you're going to face struggles. Like, we all face them. And, and so the groom and bride are standing there in front of me, and I'm like, hey, bro, I was talking to the guy, I'm like, this lady standing beside you, there's going to be a day that she is going to do something that makes you shake your head and wonder what in the world happened to that little lady standing beside you, right? He said, it's going to happen. And, and I kid you not, he was like, and he looked at her and said, It's not gonna happen. And inside, I'm like, That's so sweet. Because <laughs> we know it's gonna happen. It's like when you have kids. You know, like everybody's an expert about how to raise kids until you have kids, right? It just cracks me up all the ideas about how to raise kids and you have one. You're like, What in the world am I doing? Like I when I you know I used to watch people carry their kids out, screaming, kicking, and crying. I'm like, what's their problem? Get those kids out of control. And then I had kids. <laughs> Took the walk of shame many times. You know, we've all in there right so, so a lot of times we go into things with with unrealistic expectations and I'm going to make a, a point here I, many times we go into serving Jesus He has changed us and in a very real way man 2 Corinthians 5:17 says that the oldest passed away, man, all things have become new we are new, but there are times we go into this with unrealistic expectations I'm never going to have a struggle man man What I'm feeling right now, this euphoric feeling, this is amazing. The feeling's never going to leave. Yes, it will. Feelings come and feelings go. There are days as a pastor, I wake up and I don't feel like I'm a Christian. You're like, oh, man, we got the wrong pastor. I told you this is not the perfect church. (laughs) But you you know what I'm talking about. Temptation's never going to come. I'm never going to struggle, never going to fall. That's just unrealistic. Now, I am going to say something. We are victorious. And that's what we're going to look at today. In fact, th- th- this passage of scripture that we're going to be studying has actually been referred to by many people as a pe- as a pessimistic chapter of the Bible. It is anything but pessimistic and I'm going to explain why over the next few minutes. You see, Pastor Matt last week looked at uh, looked at Romans chapter 6 and he mentioned Romans 6:14 which says sin will have no dominion over you and you're like huh, that'd be nice. That hasn't been my experience, but, but hold on a second. Hold on a second. We, we've got to understand what this means, and we're going to be talking about that over the next little bit. Because I think that there are times that we have these expectations that aren't realistic of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I want you, for those of you that are just freaking out like, oh, man, he, he's just lowering the bar. We're, you know, we're, you know, easy believe isn't. No, you've got to hang with me. Because I'm going to say something, in Romans chapter 7, I I, I think really all Christianity hangs on verse 6. And here's why, I'm going to read verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code you, you got to understand that man, all the way, man, we, we looked at the problem of sin in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, then we looked at, at, at justification, righteousness, the, the, the faith that we've been given in, in Romans 3, 4, 5, and even 6 last week. And all of this, he's building up to this, that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the way of the written code. Now, you got to understand, I'm, I'm making this big claim. This is at the heart of everything. You have to understand this, or you don't understand really at what is at the essence. What is the essence of Christianity? Because what eluded me for many years is that there is a difference between morality and following Jesus Christ. Morality is a very good thing, okay? So I'm not here, like, dogging on morality. Every we need morality. Our communities need morality. In fact, what we're seeing in our country and our communities is a lack of morality and it causes the issues. L- listen, you, but you don't have to be a follower of Christ to be a moral person. There's a difference between morality and following Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today because what we're going to see here are two battles being waged. And so, so I'm going to read a bunch. you got to hang with me because I'm going to get back, and we're, we're going to hit this, okay? So I'm going to pick up our reading now. We've read verse 6. Paul is now going to give an example. He, he's going to talk about why Romans 7, this big claim that he has in Romans 7, 6, why this is true is we pick up our reading here in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. However, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Okay, so, so what we see is the law is actually a means by which we actually understand what sin is. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And you're like, okay, that is really confusing. Hang on. I'm going to come back and talk about this specifically. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. What are you talking about? That's why we're doing this this morning. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? I mean, is it the law's fault that I sin? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is actually a good thing that we're understanding what sin is. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. And here's what Paul says, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my actions. My actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing. Hang with me. It's not... Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You know what I love? I love that the the word of God is so relevant and real. Have you ever felt that? Has anybody here felt that? Am I the only one? No, man, we've all felt this struggle that he's talking about. He's literally putting words. He's articulating what we wish we could say and we can't figure it out. He's saying it right here. So verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. But man, verse 22 is huge. We're going to come back to this too. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see, my, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Can't you hear this frustration? Who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm giving you guys something that is so stinking powerful. This, if, if you don't hear anything else, this right here is where it's at. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Oh, that was weak. You, what, what is going on? That, I'm saying this again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's still weak, man. We need some applause here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come on, guys. This is it, guys. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is what I'm talking about. Now, he, he, he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But I'm going to go right, because like, you know, they have these chapters and we think like, Paul wrote with like chapters. He didn't. Somebody else put it in because he would have just kept on flowing into Romans 8 1. So I'm going to read verse, verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that some good news? That is some good news this morning, guys. This is what we're talking about. So I want you to catch. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, write this down. You and I are victorious. You and I are victorious, though, only through the work of Christ. I want to, I man, listen, we've got we to catch this. You and I are victorious because the reason I say this, a lot of people have looked at Romans chapter 7, and they're like, this is the chapter in Scripture that gives me the excuse to sin. It's like, yeah, I can't help it. I just say, hey, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Eh, hey, whatever, God's cool with that. No, he's not, okay? So that's not what it's saying because you've got to understand Romans 7 with its two bookends, Romans 6 and Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 6, he already said that's not true. Should we just continue to sin so we can show that grace is grace? He's like, no, by no means. So that's not what he's talking about. Romans chapter 8, on the other hand, we're going to get to that next week. This is, like is going to be part two of a three-part uh, series. We've got to look at Romans 6, 7, and 8. Man, it, it's just, it is just awesome, the victory that's there. What we have here in Romans chapter 7 is something that's really, really important. We're going to break this down, and I'm going to do this by, by doing something kind of weird. So hold on just a second. You show up to grace, you never know what the pastor's going to do. Um, when I was a kid, I liked comic books. Anybody, anybody else, you know, just kind of? You, I got an amen. Wow, that's good. Like My, my favorite was... Uh, I like Spider-Man. I had all, all those comic books, all that. But, but there, was this, uh, there was another character that really intrigued me, and, and that was the Incredible Hulk. You, you guys, you're the Incredible Hulk, right? You watch the Avenger movies and all that. And like, some of you are like, man, this is ungodly. Just hang with me. You're gonna, you need to relax. Okay? So, so just to give you a quick summary, Dr. Bruce Banner, he's this weak socially awkward guy that just can't get anything done. Uh, He's exposed to to these gamma rays. And and after he's exposed to this, you know, anytime he's faced with danger or he's frustrated or whatever, he transforms into this giant, raging, angry beast of a man, the Incredible hawk. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so, so what, what we see is that, that Dr. Bruce Banner, he, he's really two people, all right? There's, uh, I've been waiting to do this. This is amazing, man. There's Dr. Bruce Banner, and then we got the hawk. They're the same person. But they manifest themselves. So, so anytime he faces this, man, all of a sudden, man, Hulk manifests himself. And, 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 and Hulk doesn't think. He's not logical, not at all like Dr. Bruce Banner. He's like the exact opposite. So we, we see this, this alter ego thing going on. Fascinating. You watch the you know, watch, watch the Marvel movies and all that. You get a feel for that. Well, what a lot of people don't know is a Stan Lee who wrote, uh, who was the uh, creator of The Incredible Hulk, got the idea for this character partly, partly from a a little novella that was written in the 1880s called uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody ever hear of that little little book? Okay, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay, so this whole thing of of, of Hulk comes from this. I promise I'm going somewhere. Hang with me. So so here's the deal. So we got De- Dr. Jekyll, who is this very moral, respectable, upstanding uh, person. You know, everybody in the community knows who he is, respects him, and all that sort of thing. So you read this book, and I, I'm telling you, it, if you read the book, it's, it's actually terrifying. It's, it's a pretty jacked up book. So Robert Louis Stevenson, he, he's envisioning this, you know, these, these you know, the this guy, Dr. Jekyll, who becomes very unhappy because he he becomes convinced of the fact that there is this radical duality. And what I mean by that, there are there are two parts of him. You know, he he wants to he wants to do this, but then there's a part of him that just gets frustrated. And and literally he feels these two selves, if you were, if you will, warring against each other. So you know in the book he comes up with this this potion and anytime he drinks this potion he he actually separates the two cells so there's Dr Jekyll the moral upstanding person and then there's his alter ego Mr Hyde who is the very personification of evil like in the book it, like people won't even look him in the face it's it's when you look at Mr. Hyde, he is the picture of evil. There is absolutely no saving grace. And, and I'm telling you, it is a pretty messed up. It's a very bleak story. And what we see at the end of the, the end of story is that Dr. Jekyll had no idea how evil this part of him is. He had no idea how depraved he really was. And what he finds is not only is he worse off than he ever could have thought, there's actually no possible way for this inner battle to be won. It's actually a pretty messed up story. Now, if you think this aligns really well with what we've read in Romans 7, there's a reason. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde based in large part on Romans chapter 7. He was raised in a very strict, devout Scottish Presbyterian home, and they emphasize the depravity of man, how wicked man is. It, this, this influenced him greatly, and so what we have here is, in, in, at least in some measure, Robert Louis Stevenson's take, his interpretation of this inner struggle that takes place. So here's my question. Does Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde really illustrate Christianity? Is there this guy and this guy? Well, let's talk about this because I do believe that there is a battle that is always being waged. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we're told that we are in a battle, that we battle, that there is a battle that's going on. And we're, we're told that this battle is not just a physical battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There is a spiritual battle that's being, that, that, you know, that is being waged here. And so so what we have here is this incredible leader, the Apostle Paul, who's this more respectable guy. It's not some reprobate. He's writing his life story, and he's saying, hey, I'm finding out that I've got an issue. But what Robert Louis Stevenson missed in his take on Romans 7 is that there is a difference in tenses between verses 7 through 13 and verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Now, this is very important because there's a past tense in which Paul is talking about who he was before Christ, and then beginning in verse 14, there's a present tense in which he's talking about himself after Christ, and so I want to talk about these two battles to make sure that we understand this. I'm, I'm holding on to this, guys. We are victorious through the work of Jesus Christ. But, but, but the first battle that, that I want us to look at is this. It's the battle you cannot win. This is a battle you cannot win. And this is the battle before Christ. And so I want to talk to all the moral, upstanding, righteous people here. Okay? Because that's, that's who Paul was. So I'm not talking to like the person like, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm a really bad sinner and all that. No, no. I, I want to I talk to the person that, uh, that you're, man. Maybe you're a leader here at the church, or, or maybe, man, your family looks up to you. You're this really moral person. Because, you see, Paul had some awareness of sin in his life, but in essence, it had been pretty well held down. He's Dr. Jekyll, if you will. But, but there's this time that comes when Paul realizes there's this battle going on, and that's verse 9. I told you we were going to come back to verse 9, where he says, where he writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, let's, what's, his, what's he talking about here? Okay, It doesn't mean that he was having a pretty good life. And then somebody showed up and said, hey, let me teach you the Ten Commandments or whatever. And he's like, oh, I'm a sinner. What, what am I doing? No, no, no. He was, he was raised in a very devout home like probably many of you were. Like, I mean, he went to church when he was a kid. In fact, he, as a young boy, would have memorized the law. He knew the law back backwards and forwards. So it wasn't an issue of knowledge no, what he's talking about here is there's a difference between knowing the law and understanding the law. What he's, what he's saying is that, oh, man, one day, for whatever reason, the light came on and he understood what it was that was going on. he's like, when I understood the law, it literally killed me. And what he's saying is when, that, when, when the light came on, sin came alive. And we're like, oh, man, that's a terrible thing. No, actually, can I, can I just say this? This sounds kind of messed up, but hang with me. That's actually God's grace at work before salvation. We will never repent of sin unless our eyes are open and we realize that we are sinners. And when God opens our eyes and he lets us see that, if you will, there's an incredible hawk raging on the inside, we understand that we are in desperate need of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. When he gives us his understanding of of, of this guy, whatever this represents in in our lives, what what Paul writes here is this understanding actually inflames our desire. That's why he said, for I I would not have known what it means to covet unless the law had, had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, since it brought to his awareness this is sin, what it did was it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, (laughs) there's this this weird thing about when you realize something, you know, you you get it and you you didn't realize it before. And now that you've seen it, you can't unsee it. So I'm (laughs) like, this is stupid, okay? I have some friends that were going out, this was years, years ago. I was, I was probably a teenager, maybe even before that. They were going out uh, to night, just the two of them, left the kids with a babysitter. And before the, the dad left, and he said, hey, you kids take care of yourselves, and whatever you do, don't stick peas up your nose, being stupid. They go out the door. Why do you think the kids did? They had never ever thought about sticking peas up the nose. Never, never even crossed their minds. Hey, whatever you do, don't stick peas up your nose. Well, they went, while the, well, the, the, uh, the babysitter was in a different room, they went to the freezer, got out some frozen peas, and each of them said, hey, let's, what, what happens when you stick peas up your nose? Stuck peas up their nose. Now, this was before cell phones, okay? So they, the, the babysitter couldn't get hold of the couple, they come home, their kids are screaming, the babysitter's screaming. They had to take their kids to the hospital. It required surgery. They stuck those stupid peas up their nasal passages so far. All because the guy, hey, whatever you do, don't stick peas up your nose. And they went and did it. And you're like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Well, it's not because I've already talked to people after the first service. Their grandkids did the same thing. And, and man, this is just, we're actually born this way. Like, like, covetousness is not a word that we use a lot, like to covet, to desire, and all of that sort of thing. But, but when we understand we've got a problem, we can't see anything else. In fact, right now, as we speak, your little angels that are back in nursery... Right now, there is all kinds of coveting going on back in that. Like, like there is mass sin happening in nursery right now, right? Because, like, like there's, there's a kid that, that he has a toy, and he does not care about that toy until Johnny picks up that toy, and all of a sudden, he's obsessed with what he doesn't have. And he's like, mine! And there's a tug of war right now. Literally, you're, there's going to be a code that shows up that says, come get your kid. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. This is at the heart of, of covetousness, to covet. You see, there's nothing wrong with desire, but, but, but this is, this is, this is a, a desire that captivates us, that obsesses us. This is covetousness. I see this all the time. It's funny, and this is even in moral people. Like, like for instance, there are a lot of people that, man, they have a great reputation, but they'll come to me, and, and I appreciate that they trust me, and they'll sit down and they'll say, man, Here's the thing, man, I, I, got, I got an issue, I'm struggling with pornography, and I really want to break free from this sin. And so they, they, they actually obsess over breaking free from that sin, and it's the weirdest thing, the more they obsess over breaking free from pornography, the more the temptation comes, the more they struggle with pornography. I see this happen all the time. I see it happen with, with people that, that, man, are struggling with addictions or, or with anger. I, I hear this. The more we obsess over, man, I'm going to get out. I've got to get out of this. The, the, the more we become captivated, we become enslaved by this. And th- this is not in my notes. I'm taking an aside here. By the way, our number one focus should not be breaking free from the sin, if our focus is to follow Jesus with all of our heart, it's amazing what God will do when we start there. Start with Christ because you and I in and of ourselves cannot set ourselves free from sin. Right. We, can put some, we can put some guardrails in place, but at the end of the day, it's only Jesus Christ that can transform a heart even the heart of a moral person like Paul. So what we're seeing here, he's like, man, you know, this, this issue, it's, you know, I, I covet, and this listen, there's nothing wrong with desiring, but this is an idolatrous coveting that says, I need, I need, I need, and what it's really saying is, I need this more than God. You see, morality in and of itself is a good thing. I mean, all of us have some sort of moral code. As I travel around the world, it's very funny to me how similar moral codes are the same. Regardless of religion, regardless of whether you believe in God or not, we all have some understanding. You know, we think it's a good thing to keep your word. We think it's a good thing not to commit violence against somebody else. We think it's a good thing not to steal. You know, there, there are some there are moral codes that are very important to the fabric of a community, but what Paul sees here is that this morality, it's something that he needs. I need to be viewed as, as, as respectable. I need this. I need, I need, I need. And the more he needs, the more dissatisfied he becomes. And what Paul begins to understand is that all of his morality, it was nothing more than covetousness. It's okay to want to be moral. That's a good thing. But he coveted it. He wanted it. He had to have it. He, he didn't want to have to depend on God. God's grace like everybody else, I need this. And guys, it's hard for us to understand the gospel. And to understand what it means to follow Christ if we can't acknowledge and we don't know and we don't see the battle that is waging, being waged inside of us. And here's the thing about this battle. Before Christ, it cannot be won. If this was the only battle, then Robert Louis Stevenson had it right with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But that's not the end of the story. We don't have to live under condemnation. You see, there is another battle, and this is what I want to end with this morning. But this battle is fought differently. This church is where I get fired up. This is the battle you cannot lose. Listen to me. This is the battle you cannot lose. And this is the battle that is fought after Jesus Christ. There's a battle fought before Christ, but church, there's also a battle fought after Christ. But the battle that we see here in verses 14 through 25 is almost completely different from the, f- from, from the first. I want you to notice the difference Christ makes, and I am going to have to hurry. In the first battle, it's a fight between my conscience. We're given this God-given conscience. Now, can the conscience be desensitized, distorted? Absolutely. But we're given this God-given conscience, this covetousness. It's a back and forth between the two. It's like there's a Dr. Jekyll, the the conscience, and then we've got Mr. Hyde, the the covetousness. It's this back and forth, this back and forth, this, this pull that's going on. But in the second battle, though there is still a pull to sin, listen to me, church, there will be a pull to sin even after you follow Jesus Christ. That temptation is going to be there. The opportunity to stumble will manifest itself, but what we see is not two separate selves that are equally us, if you will, because we're not who we used to be. We see who we are after Christ in Romans seven twenty two, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is at the heart of who I am. There's still this power pulling me to sin, but it's not me. I'm not divided anymore. So in the first battle, if you will, there's the, the you know, the two selves have, have equal, they have equal power, the, the covetousness and, and conscience pulling us, pulling us back and forth. But in the second battle, and this is why I can't wait to get to Romans chapter 8, we are given the Holy Spirit who changes us. And he doesn't just change us. What he does is he changes our perception of the law. You see, the law before is a bad thing. Up to this, the the law is nothing more than making us want to do what we know we shouldn't do. We're miserable. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. You see, here's the thing, man. Before Christ, our conscience and our covetousness, they both hate the law. The conscience hates the law because it's like this impossible standard that we can't keep. And so we're, we're never measuring up. There's a constant condemnation. Covetousness hates the law because it keeps me from being who I really want to be from my very, my, myself, that evil manifesting itself. But listen, church, the reason why we're preaching this series, we're teaching through the book of Romans and why we're, we're calling this the people of the gospel. That's who we are. The gospel changes everything. The first thing that we understand is that before Christ we are dead in our sins, and which means that we cannot satisfy or, pl- or please God with our righteousness alone on our best days with our best acts. It will never happen. But here's the beauty of the gospel. In fact, if you want to write this down and you, you, can, you can follow up and, and read this later, 2 Corinthians 5:21. This is powerful. For our sake, He, talking about God, made him, talking about Jesus, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me break down what that means. It doesn't say that on the cross Jesus was perceived as or treated like a sinner. It doesn't say that on the cross Jesus legally became a sinner no, what it says is that on the cross, Jesus quite literally became sin itself. He didn't become a sinner. He became sin for us, which is why. It, maybe it's hard for us to understand why would God pour out his wrath on his son on the cross? This is the way it had to be done. There was only one way. And what, what took place, guys, this is so powerful. In essence, Jesus Christ became Mr. Hyde. He became the very essence of evil. The, you know Someone that you see evil, you want to punch it out. You want to get rid of that. Let's get that evil out of here. That is who Jesus became on the cross for us. And what, what we read is so powerful. God poured out. His wrath, it should have been our wrath. We should have received this. He poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And because of Christ's work on the cross, we can be saved. We're not just saved from our sins. We're not just saved to eternal life. We're saved even from the wrath of God. We are victorious through Christ's work and Christ's work alone, which means that now we are fighting a battle, church, that we cannot lose. This is it. We are victorious through Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let me break it down this way. We're going to close. There are at least three different groups here today. The first group is the person you have no understanding that you're a sinner. Like, you're who Paul was talking about. Before you understood the commandment, you're like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. Life is good. Life is good. You're not even aware of it. you make your You're moral. You're actually pretty proud with it. Man, I'm doing pretty good keeping the law. It's pretty good. You don't understand your neediness. And guys, I've been praying this, man, this entire weekend, again this morning, that God in his faithfulness would open your eyes to the fact that there's an incredible hawk that's dwelling inside you, if you will. That you're a sinner. Not, not because I just want to make you feel terrible. No, because I want you to experience victory. But you see, there's also a second group, and those are the people, you know what I'm talking about. It's that, it's that constant struggle back and forth. You're trying. You know that, that, that you're a sinner and you're miserable, but it's like the more you, you think about it and you try to break free from the sin, the more it obsesses you. You're des- man, it just inflames the desire, and so your life is like a never-ending cycle of, of sinning. Then you beat yourself up, you make all these restitutions and promises to all the people around you, God included, and then you fall again, and you're tired of it. But it's, it's like, it's, it's the battle that you just can't win. And I, I want you to understand, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you to understand that you can't win that battle. But then there's a third group, and that's the group of you that are in Christ. And you've started this journey But maybe you had some unrealistic expectations when you started this journey. You thought your life would be the Disney picture of whatever the Disney picture is of following Jesus. You weren't going to fall. You weren't going to have that struggle. You weren't going to have that sin. You weren't going to struggle. And and then the temptation came because sin still pulls at us. And you stumbled and you fell. and, And here's what, if your identity is not found in Christ, if your hope is not found in Christ's work but in your work, here's here's what can happen. When we fall, we begin to doubt. Maybe I really haven't changed. Maybe, in essence, to use my illustration, I'm still Jekyll and Hyde. Today, I've come to tell you, (laughs) if you're in Christ, It's no longer the two different selves battling inside. You have been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. He is for you. And because of Christ's work and Christ's work alone, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have victory. Well, what do I do, man? I I feel the struggle. I've I've fallen, all that. Hey, 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 look, listen. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you know what the difference is in in different perceptions on that verse? If if verse 22 is is not true, if you don't delight in the law of God in your inner being, you're gonna look at that verse and that's gonna be an excuse for you to sin because you're like, I gotta get out of jail uh, free card. I can do whatever I want. If that's you, you're not in Christ. Sorry, I, I don't mean to, I'm just telling you, you're not in Christ. If you're in Christ, that. That verse is a lifeline. When we fall, what's changed is we fall forward. In Christ, my sin does not define me. That's who I used to be. It's not who I am in Christ. My real self delights in the Lord. I want more of him. I want to please him. I want to follow him. And so what do I do? I confess, I repent. And I walk forward knowing this I am victorious through the work of Jesus Christ alone. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we're jumping into Romans chapter 8, and just get ready. I'm bringing. We're bringing the missiles, man. It's going to be incredible. Guys, I am so fired up. If I could have got fireworks to go off inside this place, I'd have done it. That's how awesome Romans 8 is. But here's what I want us to know as we close. If you're here today and you don't know, you can know. Jesus Christ did his work for you and it was enough and you could be set free. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to close in prayer as we've done every time. If today... Maybe you've just been aware that, made aware, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm going to walk you through my prayer, what it means to, to give your life to Christ. It's, it's a starting place. It's not the end of the story, but it's, it's a starting place. Then if today, man, God has challenged you, he's opened your eyes. Oh, man, the, this isn't who I'm intended to be, man. I'm going to give you the chance. We're going to stand and we're going to celebrate the fact that God opened our eyes today. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for how it convicts, how it cleanses, how it challenges, how it changes us. And Father, I want to thank you for the clarity that you've given us today. Thank you that our hope and our confidence is not in trying to line our conscience up with the law and trying to meet this standard. God, we can never do it on our best days. But God, what we can do is we can have victory through Christ's work and Christ's work alone. And God, maybe today you and your faithfulness have opened the eyes of someone they understand they're a sinner and they're asking, what must I do to be saved? Dear God, I pray that they would understand it's nothing more than just saying, God, would you take me as I am? I can't change myself. I believe that what Christ did on the cross was for me. Would you change me, save me? I don't even know what it looks like yet, but I, I want to I learn what it means to follow you. God, I believe that as that happens, oh, some incredible things that are, that are ahead. The story's been changed. But God, I also want to pray for the person that's here. They've known the law, but they haven't understood it. The law has been their master. God, I'm praying that today they would understand that Christ, you're the master that we need. And it's only then that we can even be changed the fact that we understand that that to know the law is is, is to know you, that that we can actually delight in your law. And we can delight in the fact that it's Christ's work that brings us the victory. And uh, God, I pray that in this time of confession, of just saying, God, I need your help, to God, that you will answer that prayer and you will continue to do your work. So Father, for what you've done, for what you're gonna continue to do, we thank you for this. And I pray this believing that the best is yet to come. I pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Listen, this morning, if either you gave your heart to Jesus Christ for the first time or perhaps today, God, just opened your eyes and you're like, I get it. Man, that's it. I'm claiming the victory today that I have in Christ. If that's you, I just want you to stand up. If that was you, I just want you to stand up. We're going to celebrate. Anybody this morning? Anybody this morning? Just stand up. We're going to celebrate that. I'm cool pausing. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Well, next week, Bring, man, how do I say this? Um, these seats do not come equipped with seat belts, so go ahead and bring a seat belt for next week. And, and you know, like, like at the end of every Avengers movie, I'm gonna go use my, my Incredible Hulk thing. At the end of every Avengers movie, they give you a little trailer for what's gonna come next, like after the credits. Here's your little trailer. There's absolutely nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, I just have somebody stand up. Bro, come on, let's celebrate, guys. This is awesome. Woo-hoo, man, that's it, that's it, that's it. Come on. Everybody stand up. Guys, we're in Christ. We have victory only through the work of Jesus Christ. Go with confidence knowing that he is for you. Nothing's going to separate you from his love. Come back. Get ready for a July 4th like you've never had. You're dismissed. We'll see you next Sunday.